We're starting a new series today uh, called uh, Psalms, Your Playlist for Life. And uh, it's a series that is designed for you to be able to dip into and out of over the summer uh, Sundays. Uh, so between this Sunday and the last Sunday uh, in August, you will hear a message that is built around a particular psalm. Uh, and today's psalm, as Peniel read for us, is from Psalm 17. I'm going to open uh, with a little bit of a, a kind of a, a story for you, uh, which dates back to 1940s America. Um, it was just after the war, and there were a lot of Christian organizations gearing up for evangelism. There was a lot of outreach uh, just after the war, you know, wartime or, or pandemics actually as well. Uh, they cause upheaval, and people feel unsettled, and it creates a spiritual thirst from which there are opportunities to reach out to people with the good news of Jesus. Um, and the end of the Second World War, the late 40s, was no exception. And particularly in Britain and America, there were lots and lots of evangelistic efforts being made to reach people, to connect with people. Um, and there are four kind of youngish guys, maybe late 20s, early 30s, who meet in a town called Modesto in California. Um, and they come up with a plan. And this plan is to do with personal integrity. They want to make sure that their, their evangelistic efforts are characterized by really great integrity because what they're seeing around them is, is well-intentioned efforts becoming dis derailed because people are not setting out a plan to have integrity with the way they do things. Uh, and so these four gentlemen get together and they produce something which becomes known as the Modesto Manifesto. Uh, the four gents concerned, a gent called Beth Shea, Grady Wilson, Cliff Barrows, and a name you're bound to have heard of, uh, the name Billy Graham. Uh, so these four guys get together, and they come up with this uh, manifesto, and their guiding principle for it was avoid any situation that would have even the appearance of compromise or suspicion. Uh, even the appearance of it. And, and this particular manifesto had an outworking in four main areas. Uh, the first area that they committed to was that they would never try to extract funds from a meeting that they were in. So in other words, they would go along to an engagement, they would speak there, but they wouldn't try and whip the crowd into a kind of a giving frenzy. They made a decision that they would go to any kind of engagement having funded it beforehand. And then if people wanted to give in the meeting, it was completely unlinked to any of the efforts made in the meeting. So they were disconnecting finance from engagement, which is a sound principle because it means that you're, you can't be accused of kind of whipping up the crowd in a particular way. The second thing they said was that we are going to partner with specific churches. We're not going to just be a separate silo of Christianity that kind of arrives in town and does its thing and then goes away again. No, we're going to actually partner with local churches and work alongside them. And that's a very sound kingdom principle. The third thing was that they promised never to exaggerate the numbers. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure we've all been around those meetings or those pastors or those leaders where they say, oh yeah, you know, there were 500 people there. And actually when you check, there were like five. And it really wasn't that large. Um, and the pastor is trying to make it sound more than it is. They just, they just decided we're never going to do that. We're just going to accept whatever official figures are given to us for any of our rallies or our meetings. And then the fourth principle they had, and this is possibly the most famous one from the, the Modesto Manifesto, was that they, they said we're not going to have any solo travel or solo meal times with a woman who isn't our wife. Because all four of them were married, uh, and they just made a commitment that, that they wouldn't do something that could be perceived by an outsider or another Christian as even the hint of uh, anything improper. 
And so with these four principles that they discussed and agreed, they didn't write them down, they just said, they just said them together and they prayed about them. They then launched into which, which, uh, something that has become known as one of the longest and most fruitful periods of evangelism from any team ever. They had around about just under six decades. I think it was 58 years of incredibly fruitful ministry for God. Um, Billy Graham apparently went on to uh, reach more than 210 million people in his lifetime. Uh, some of that was face-to-face in stadiums or you know, in person, and some of it was via satellite feeds. And that was in over 185 countries and territories on six continents. And his, his ministry apparently spanned 11 U.S. presidencies back-to-back. That's just a colossal influence for Jesus. And there is absolutely, absolutely no doubt that the Modesto Manifesto, those statements of intention about integrity and practice really assisted them to achieve that. Um, He wrote, and it was put on his website in October 2016, uh, Billy Graham uh, wrote this. He said that the manifesto did settle in our hearts and minds once and for all the determination that integrity would be the hallmark of both our lives and our ministry. Uh, We find ourselves today in Psalm 17, and uh, we're sort of picking different psalms over these course of the the next few weeks. Um, And Psalm 17 is, as as Peniel read there at the beginning, it's a prayer. It's a prayer by David, and it's kind of like a straight prayer between him and God, and he's asking for certain things. Now, we might not be as successful, perhaps, as Billy Graham, but Billy Graham's example is something that we can all learn from, and Psalm 17 really speaks strongly into the example that he set. There are lots of things that we can learn from Billy Graham's example with that Modesto Manifesto, and Psalm 17 seems to underscore uh, these, uh, his approach, and it does it in three ways. It speaks into vindication, number one, Integrity, number two, and number three, protection. Vindication, integrity, and protection. Now, vindication means being proved right or true uh, all along, even when other people have claimed that you haven't been. Vindication means that you were right after all, and that the principles you'd stuck to were correct, even though they were called into question by whoever and for however long. When you get your vindication, it's shown that you were proven to be right after all. So vindication, number one. Number two, integrity means the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles that you refuse to change, that you don't compromise on those internal moral principles, that you have a moral fabric on the inside of you that you stick to. Um, And one of the benefits of being a follower of Jesus is that he gives you a template for a moral fabric that you can follow. Um, and that's ever so helpful because any time you're not sure what to do, you can go, well, how would Jesus handle this? Uh, what would he say? What would he do? And thirdly, protection, as it sounds, is putting a guard or a barrier around something that we hold really precious, something that we think that has value. And then we think, no, we want to protect that from being attacked. Vindication, integrity, protection. 
Uh, so uh, let, me, let me take you through uh, some of these. And I'm go- what I'm going to do is I'm going to speak into each one, and I'm going to give us some practical points and some help from Psalm 17, just to kind of guide us and get us going uh, in our new Psalms series for the summer. So I don't know if you've ever watched something play out in front of you that you thought was really unfair. Um, a few years back, uh, myself and my wife, Chloe, were at a school sports day. And uh, uh, school sports days, I mean, the parents, the, you know, the, the intensity of support and the fanaticism and, the, and, the, and the, you know, they want those kids to win. And especially if it's their kid, that, you know, they are yelling at the sidelines. They want stuff to happen. Anyway, we're, we're watching a, a kind of a cross-country race that runs around the field. And there's this lad, and I'm going to call him James just in case he ever watches this. And I, I want to kind of preserve people's uh, anonymity. Uh, but this lad called James, he's a great runner. And he's running around and he's lapping people. And he's doing really, really well, and we're cheering him on. But there's another runner who is envious of James, who is nowhere near as good, called Tommy. And Tommy tries openly to kick his legs when he's running along. And James kind of jumps out of the way and carries on running. And we're like all completely aghast at this as parents. We're like, what? That's not, that's not fair. And then on the final lap, uh, James comes running around, and, and Tommy actually tries to slide tackle him. And James just like leaps clear and gets, you know, gets over him and, and just carries on and wins to the end. And he gets first place. And we're all, we're all cheering on the sidelines. You know, when, when you watch something and it's patently unfair, you feel that you want to see vindication happen. And in fact, it was great for that particular sports day because we saw James get his vindication. He didn't suffer from, uh, you know, like being derailed like that. One of the things that I've noticed, particularly in sports, for instance, is that the data and the visuals around sport have got better and better and better over the years for this very reason, haven't they? Uh, I don't know if those of you who perhaps have watched Wimbledon back over the years, but back in the day, they, used to, they didn't used to have the same technology to be able to tell whether the ball was in or out or not. Um, it used to be like a debate. Uh, one of the commentators today that you'll see at Wimbledon, you know, when Wimbledon's on, is a guy called John McEnroe, and he's actually a really great pundit and a commentator. It's great when he's commentating. I like his observations. I think he brings a really good uh, view on the game. But he was famous, especially in the 80s, for absolutely debating the issue with the umpire. He would argue the toss. He would, like, say he had a famous phrase. Um, it was, you cannot be serious. And he would try and sort of persuade the umpire that they were wrong. And actually, part of who he was prompted um, a whole attempt uh, to bring in much better technology. And what you see now is when you go to uh, Wimbledon now, if the player decides they want to call it and say, hey, listen, I think that was out, um, and there's a question mark over it, they pause the game, don't they? And they replay it, and the, and the crowd go, oh, oh, and they clap, and it gets faster and faster and faster. And then they show the answer on the screen, don't they? And you can see, oh, yes, it was in. It's like the, the, the ball is just over the line. Or no, it's just out. And the crowd sort of are like, oh, we've got a decision. So the technology has moved on a lot in those areas of potential injustice around sport. I don't know if any of you have been watching any of the Commonwealth Games. Uh, we had a, an incredibly exciting photo finish in the cycling yesterday. Uh, Canada and New Zealand were in a race, and uh, the New Zealand girl kind of really put in a fantastic effort at the last minute, and it looked like they crossed the line together. Uh, but then the, t- the, the company that provides the photo finish photographs, it came up on the screen, and there, sh- there it was, the New Zealand lady had literally a, the rim of her tyre Uh, the wheel rims gap between her and the Canadian, and she'd won it. She'd pipped the Canadian at the post. And so technology and visibility can really help us make sure about fairness. 
can't it? Um, now, injustices happen, I think, in degrees. You have minor injustices, perhaps at the, at the school sports day. You have injustices that you're working on in the sporting arena to make sure they don't happen. But injustices can climb and climb, and they can get more and more serious. Um, back in the noughties, I think it was kind of 2001, 2002, up to 2007, there was a guy called Lance Armstrong. And he was famous for his uh, Tour de France cycling wins. Uh, but what they found was that he was doing a sophisticated system of um, blood transfusions in order to pump his blood with steroids to give him better performance. And in fact, that was, uh, that was deemed to be true, what he was doing, and they stripped him of all of his uh, Tour de France titles. Um, now, that's a very, very serious infringement. And what's, what's particularly sad about that is it, obviously the person who then came second and third. Because on the rostrum... On the day that the awards were given and he gets the, you know, the, the garland around his neck and the bottle of champagne and stuff, that person who should have come first now cannot go back and have that. Even though they've been awarded the Tour de France title, they, miss, they still miss out on something. And that's unfair, isn't it? That's, that can't be recreated. That moment is now gone because of someone else causing an injustice. And of course... There's injustices that happen around us in the world that are much, much nastier and much more severe uh, to human life, to people's dignity, uh, to uh, you know, racial groups, to uh, nations, and so on and so on. And we see this a lot going on around us. Injustice towards anyone is a truly horrible thing. What we see in Psalm 17 is David petitioning God directly about unfairness and injustice in fact the psalm opens lord hear a just cause pay attention to my cry listen to my prayer he's got a cause that he wants god to know about he cries out to god in fact he's very very strong about it don't miss the fact that he uses incredibly strong language verse 13 with your sword save me from the wicked when's the last time you asked god to get his sword out on your behalf and kind of start swinging it around on your behalf. I'm, I'm not suggesting that many of us have done that often. Now, David's behavior reveals some very wise help about handling this whole area of vindication. It's very wise, actually. There's three little things. You might want to wrote, write these down in your notes. In fact, we're, we're following this along on the YouVersion app. Um, if you open up the YouVersion app, app and go to events, you'll see that we're live today. And the text there and the headings is, the he, the, the text is there. The headings are there. Please do add in your own notes. So first of all, uh, David's example is that when we're in an unfair situation, the first thing we should do is we should absolutely petition God about it. That's the first thing to do. Sometimes for some of us, that's the last thing we do. And that's not around the right way. When we're in an unfair situation and we're seeking vindication, we're seeking righteousness to be applied to something, get in that prayer closet with God and ask God about it. Tell him your situation because God acts a bit like the photo finish person. He's the person who understands all the line calls in the game of tennis, if you like, because he's got complete visibility of the situation. And not only does he have complete visibility of it, he understands motivation as well. Do you remember that story in Mark 2 uh, where Jesus reads the thoughts of the teachers of the law and he kind of knows what they're thinking and it's not very positive towards him and he guesses that? Well, you know, you're not going to get around the fact that God understands your heart. But that, what that does is it means that God is the perfect person to take up your case because not only has he seen it perfectly, he can also 
in, uh, he, he also uh, has the understanding of the motivation behind what's been going on. And so that makes him the perfect person to take your case to. Secondly, David does not stoop to the level of those who are coming against him. And that's really key. In, in issues to do with vindication, in issues to do with righteousness, first of all, we petition God. But second, we don't mirror the behavior that's being shown to us. In fact, we take the moral high ground. Now, that's hard sometimes. Sometimes people treat us in a way and something in us rises up and we get angry and we want to treat them back the same way in order that they feel the feelings we're feeling. It's a natural thing to do, but it's not a godly thing to do. So take it to God. Don't stoop to the level of those coming against you. Keep to the moral high ground. And then thirdly, and lastly around this point on vindication, you're going to need to be patient. The, the whole area of vindication and seeking justice and looking for God's righteousness to come through requires a lot of patience. And it's a form of faith, actually. Patience around an area of, un, of injustice is a form of faith. It's you saying, I'm prepared to wait whatever it takes, Lord, to do things right by your standards and the way you want to do them. And in your timing, you will fix this for me. And I'm not going to be the person who gets in there and nudges that along. Have you ever tried to do that with, with God? You know, you, there's a case and you're kind of like, no, God, if I just, you know, if I just did this little thing, you know, perhaps kicked this person here or did this little payout here or, you know, and we try and manage this thing so that it goes a bit faster because we're, we're a bit impatient. No, be patient. Petition God, take the moral high ground and be super patient. Now, is there something today for you that is, is a matter of injustice? Is there something that you're desperate to see vindication for? Something that you've been waiting on God for for a long, long time and you want him to come through for you? Now, if that's the case, then there'll be an opportunity for you uh, as we worship in our final song for you to come forward and to do some, to do some time at the front with God and to talk to him about that. So first, in Psalm 17, we see David seeking vindication from the Lord about an issue uh, that is on his mind and on his heart. Number two... Integrity. Integrity, number two. Um, hands up here, anybody who's had a chance to go on summer holiday already. Anyone here been on holiday? Yeah, there's a few people who are putting their hands up. Who's got a holiday coming soon? One or two people have got holidays lined up. And can I just say, it's very important that you take a holiday once a year, even if it's just a week. It's very good for you. Now, if you're still thinking of going on holiday, can I recommend a resort in the north of Norfolk called Hunstanton? Hunstanton is a seaside town, and it's famous for very long, sandy beaches. Uh, it's a really nice place to go and stay for a week if you like you know, sea air and sandy beaches and fish and chips. It's a great place to be. Now, during the 1920s and 1930s, Hunstanton grew in popularity, uh, and people were visiting it in thousands. They really, really enjoyed it, and they still do today. Um, and so in, the, in that time, the council decided it'd be a really good idea to build some amenities for people who might want to enjoy their experience a little more. So they built a large swimming pool, and they built a boating lake. Uh, and they commissioned these things, and they got on with creating them. And at first, everything seemed fine. Now, what they did in the building of these facilities was they had a decision to make about where they got the sand from. And you can imagine you know, the temptation not to go and get the sand that's a bit more expensive from the quarry would have been high when you're standing there on the seafront in, in Hunstanton looking at all this sand stretching for miles in front of you. And so the council made a decision to just use sand from the beach. 
and they used sand in the way that they created the, the, you know, in the concrete, in the pouring of the concrete. The difficulty with it was that sand from the beach has a lot of salt in it. And the salt, what the salt does over time is it erodes the quality of the construction if it's used in construction and in concrete. And so what happened was in the, in the mid-30s and the, in the 40s and the 50s, cracks kept appearing uh, in the swimming pool and in the boating lake. And they would have to close things down and do expensive repairs. And this went on and on and on because really the fabric of what they'd made was affected or contaminated by this salt. And so that the, the construction of these things just kind of didn't work. And I think what happened was it was just so poor that in the end they just decided, you know, we're not even going to try and repair these anymore. Uh, and I think there's a car park now over the swimming pool and the boating lake, sadly, is no more. Okay? So, why do I tell you that story? The reason I say that story is because... It has everything to do with integrity. If the internal fabric of something isn't quite right, it will cause it to be a lot less durable. And that's, that's the same with integrity. It, integrity means that the internal moral fabric hasn't been compromised, and therefore, it is much more durable. The reason Billy Graham had such a long ministry was because they set out that Modesto Manifesto, and it helped them to maintain that moral integrity, and that led to durability. Durability is possible only when the integrity is in there. And so for us, moral integrity uh, for ourselves means the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles that we take a stand on. Now, here's a real surprise for us in Psalm 17. In Psalm 17, David points to his own self as an example of integrity. And when I read this psalm, I was really quite shocked and challenged that he would do that. It's been a long time when I've got in the prayer closet before God and said, God, look at me. Look at how well I've done things. Hear my prayer. Because I haven't, you know, I, I don't often pray that. I don't know about you, if you get on your knees and say, yeah, God, I've just done this so well. Come on, get alongside me. I don't tend to do that. I say to God, God, I, I haven't done this that well. Would you help me out? Jesus, please give me wisdom. Holy Spirit, would you guide me? God, I need your strength. I'm, I feel like I'm a lot more dependent on the Lord, and maybe that's a good thing. But David is very confident here in Psalm 17 that his own behavior has come up to scratch. And I find that quite challenging. Listen to what he says. End of verse 1. He's got lips free of deceit. He's not saying anything bad. Verse 3, you have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined my mouth will not sin. Wow, imagine God trying me. Imagine if God tried us. Would he really find nothing evil? Would he find any mistakes there or anything that we've slipped up in? Verse 4, concerning what people do, by the words from your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. In other words, he's kind of done the right thing. Verse 5, my steps are on your paths, my feet have not slipped. David is effectively telling God that he has not deviated from what God has asked him. And he's proud of it in the right way. And he uses it in that prayer. And I want, it, it kind of got me wondering, God, could I come to you more often and point to my own behavior as an example of being qualified to receive your help? Because I'd really like to be in that place, actually. I'd like to be in that place where I can come to God and say, yeah, because I've done X, Y, and Z properly, God, as you've asked me to do, would you hear my case even more? And, and I think all too often I come to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I haven't got that quite right. Uh, you know, I really wish I'd done that better. And I'm maybe, uh, yeah, appropriate contrition, appropriate sorrow, appropriate, hey, listen, teach me, Lord, I'm, I'm open to being taught. 
But David does it differently. David's very confident of his behavior before God. That, for me, is both a challenge and also quite exciting to see that example. Can I have a similar kind of confidence in my own behavior? The best place to start in this area is in our decisions. Verse 3, David says, I have determined. Basically, he says, I have taken a stand. I am making some decisions about what I am not prepared to compromise over. In the very similar way to how Billy Graham uh, uh, does and his, his colleagues. And sometimes we need to put some structures around those decisions to protect them even more. And what that might look like, it might be saying, right, I am going on a diet. It's not godly that I'm so overweight. So I'm going to lose two pounds a week. And that's my decision. And I'm really going to do that. And by the way, I'm going to tell my life group and I'm going to weigh in and report a photo off the scales to them every week. Oh my goodness, that is hard, isn't it? To do that and to be accountable in that way. Uh, You're putting a structure around a decision. Uh, Structures around decisions can often help us Really what the council should have done in Hunstanton is they should have not taken the shortcut of getting the sand off the beach and they should have gone inland and spent the money and got the proper sand from the quarry. What can we do to get proper moral sand from the proper quarry of Jesus in order that we have decent moral integrity and that we're not taking shortcuts So what I want to challenge us with this morning uh, in this second part of the message about integrity is can I encourage you and ask you to think about what is a decision that you need to take around integrity right now in your life? You probably know what it is actually. You probably have a consciousness of, yeah, I know that's an area I need to work on. I'm working on some areas and I'm I'm sure you are too. What is one thing, last day of July... 2022, going into a new month tomorrow, yeah, I want to make a stand on this, I want to make it different, I want to approach this better, I know I've, I've fouled up here, Lord, help me out. And what you're doing by doing that is you're putting a greater moral fabric on the inside of yourself from the Lord. And again, there'll be an opportunity perhaps for you to come out and to respond to that one too. So first of all, Psalm 17, David prays for vindication. Secondly, he models immense integrity to us. The confidence he has in himself and his own behavior is quite amazing and very, uh, uh, you know, great example to try and copy. And thirdly, God, uh, David looks to God for protection. This is my third point this morning, protection. I want to tell you a little bit about the human eye. I'm going to go on a little detour here and then I'm going to come back and you'll understand why I've done it. The human eye is a truly incredible piece of biochem- uh, biomechanical engineering. It really is. Um, Inside our eyes, there are over 2 million intricately connected working parts. Um, And that's in each eye. Uh, And that makes uh, makes it very awkward to work out how they evolved. But that's like a sermon for another day. Now, imagine designing also, just think about the design involved of putting two objects, the eyes, um, able to independently through control, they've each got six muscles that control them, be pointed towards something to to be able to focus on it, but then also to be contained inside effectively your head while your head moves. So imagine you're running for the bus and you see the bus in the distance. Your eyes are both doing a job of focusing on that bus at the same time, but as your head is running up and down as you're going along the street, the engineering in that is literally ridiculous. If you, if you had to design something like that, that would be ever so hard to create. Trust me, that's really, really difficult to put together, uh, just on an engineering level. 
Our eyes can focus on up to 50 different objects at once. It's the only organ in the body more, more, the only organ in the body more complex than the eye is the brain. Literally, the eye is the second most complicated thing about human beings. I don't know if you've ever uh, recently invested in a nice new smart TV and, and maybe the advertising in the shop said, oh, you know, X number of colors. The human eye can detect up to 10 million different colors. 10 million. Insane. Absolutely incredible. Um, did you, here's a little challenge for those of us who are in B1. Okay, any B1ers in the crowd at the moment? I know it's holidays, yeah? Okay, here's a challenge for you around the eyes. Get your smartphone out and see if you can film sneezing with your eyes still open. Apparently, can't be done. You have to shut your eyes. Uh, so I'm looking forward to some of the films from that. Our eyes apparently can detect a candle flame 1.7 miles away. Think how small a candle flame is. That's incredible. You know the iris, which is the colored bit around the pupil? Uh, apparently, there are 256 unique characteristics of an iris, whereas our fingerprints only have 40. Now, detectives have used fingerprints as identification for a long time, haven't they? Very successfully. Imagine 256 uh, compared with 40 with the eyes. Have you ever had a friend that's kind of slightly unnerved you because you've worked out quite quickly when meeting them that they've got two different colored eyes? Yeah, ever, ever been a bit, maybe you're someone who has that. Sorry, but maybe you do. Uh, you have that yourself. That's called heterochromia. Hetero from meaning other and chromia meaning color. The average person blinks 12 times a minute. There we go. And the eye is the fastest contracting muscle in the body and it can contract in less than a hundredth of a second. The optic nerve, which takes all that data from our eyes into our brains, Itself, on each side of our, our, behind our eyes, itself has a million uh, nerve cells in it. The eyes are the entrance to our heart and mind, and they, are provide a, they provide a doorway to our souls. Jesus teaches the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be filled with light. Something else we also know about the eye is that they're placed in a place of great protection in our body because our skull has got like, a, there's a lot of bone around the eye area because the, precisely because the eye is so precious. And so the way that God designed us is to make sure that our eyes are protected. I'm going to ask our worship team just to come back. Uh, thank you guys. That'd be great. Just come and make a start uh, just behind me. This is why I wanted to bring to you some information about the human eye because David in Psalm 17 he's quite the poet he really is um, and he uses a wonderful image uh, or picture of how precious we are to God and how uh, how close we are to him he says this in verse 8 he says protect me as the pupil of your eye protect me as the pupil of your eye now imagine for a moment having the same level of protection and value to God as the pupil, which is that little tiny black thing that lets the light through and in and out. Imagine you have the same level of protection and preciousness to God as the pupil in God's own eye. Imagine you're that close to God. Imagine you are uh, so precious that you are completely within God's sight all the time, literally just there, like in his eye that we would be so close to him that we'd actually be a part of him. And it's not just any part, it's an incredibly, incredibly beautiful, precious and engineered and protected part. 
And there's something really lovely about the poetry of David's imagination to suggest that he could ask in prayer to be put in that place with God. He's not just looking for vindication in this, in this psalm. He's not just talking about integrity. He wants protection from God as well. He wants God to be so close to him that it would be like us being in the pupil of God's eye, right there. That's how close David wants to be. That is what's so wonderful about this psalm. That's an image that I've not been able to get out of my mind for the last few days at all. I just keep thinking about that and going, wow, that's such a great prayer to pray. Where did that come from? How could you even imagine something like that? I am sure the Holy Spirit did that with David. Would you all stand with me, BCC? Please stand. We're going to worship in a minute, but I'm going to ask you to respond to the Lord. And and the way I'd love you to respond is, if any of these three things resonate with you, I would love for you to step forward to the front and just spend a bit of time in God's presence. Is there something where you need vindication from God? Something unjust, something that's not right. Maybe it's something that's lasted a long, long time. Maybe it's even something that was just from last week. But there's an unfairness that sits in your soul about this particular issue. And you would love it if God could sort it for you. You would love it if God could just swipe in and do that, swing that spiritual sword and sort that issue out. And that it would go away. And fairness would be restored again. If that's something that resonates with you, then just while we sing, I'm just going to ask you just to step out from your seats and come to the front and tell God about that yourself. Secondly, is there a stand that you need to take on a matter of personal integrity? Is there something that you've wrestled with for a while? Is there something that's come up for you recently that God's been speaking to you about? And you've just decided, you know what, enough. I am not allowing that in my life anymore. I'm not permitting that about myself. I'm not accepting that standard of behavior in me. I am not proud of myself for that. I want to change that. I want to have the confidence to point to myself before God like David has that confidence. It's time to, to, to do business with God. It, it, maybe that's your mentality this morning. Maybe you've come to church and you've thought, man, I've struggled with this for so long now. Now is the day that I'm going I'm to take a stand on that. And, it, you, you know, I would just invite you to come to the front and, and to say that to the Lord. And then the third thing I, I want to just invite you to, to, to do, and, and maybe this is applicable to you, is that you feel you really need God's protection upon you. Perhaps you feel exposed. Perhaps you feel vulnerable. Perhaps you don't feel you have the strength that you need. And you would love to just be right in the pupil of God's eye right now. Completely in in his sight, in his perspective. And really, really close to him. If that's you, then come to the front and tell God that. Because he will respond and he will protect you. Let's all sing. Thank you so much. Thank you.